Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here's your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, our weekly examination of how alcohol beverages in the alcohol industry impact our lives, our communities, and our economy. I'm Brad Crever, and I'm joined today by co-host Scott Wexler of the Empire State Restaurant and Tavern Association. Hello, Scott. Hi, Brad. How are you? Excellent. Well, thank you, uh, Brad. And uh, on this week's show, we're going to examine alcohol beverage industry responsibility programming from its initiation up to the current day and perhaps into the future. Our conversation will review some of the key initiatives over the years and we'll look forward to programming activities we may see in the future. Now, we're joined today for this discussion by several guests who each have a long and impressive resume and responsibility activities. In our first segment, we're joined by Diane Wagner of Millicores and Rob Frederick from the Brown Foreman Company. Diane and Rob, welcome to Alcohol Across America. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott and Brad. Good to be here. So we're going to start off, since uh, since the both of you uh, represent the supplier segment of our industry, I thought that uh, that I'd like to talk with you about some uh, this issue from a supplier's perspective. Diane, can you relate to us what was your first ex- uh, experience with alcohol responsibility programming? Sure. You know, Scott, this really takes me back because I've been working for Miller Coors for over 27 years. And when I had to think about this question, I realized the very first day of my job was working on a program that produced a brochure called Let's Talk. And the brochure was created for our employees to help them talk with their children who were participating in the DARE program at school. They'd come home with questions regarding alcohol. And we were constantly reprinting this employee brochure far beyond the number of employees we had. So we recognized that there was a real public need for this information. And as a result, we started producing a public version and produced millions of copies to provide parents with this basic information about alcohol so that they could initiate and have really informed discussions with their children. And it also was a really great publication because it helped adults um, reminding them ways to set good examples so that they could help their children make really responsible choices about these important decisions in their lives. And then when I became an alcohol responsibility manager focusing on this full-time, you know, uh, several years later, um, I was really delighted to be able to be one of the pioneers in producing point-of-sale materials to help consumers know that they needed to produce an ID before uh, purchasing alcohol. And those WE-ID programs were really the, the genesis of some of the publications and materials that we produce to this day um, that our distributors continue to use to alert consumers of the need to show an ID before they purchase alcohol. That, that's a very important topic. I, I actually did a uh, training seminar for uh, bartenders just yesterday uh, afternoon uh, on, on that subject. Rob, uh, what was your first experience uh, in this area? Sure, Scott. Um, so Brown Foreman, you know, we're an old company, 150 years old almost, coming up on that birthday. We've been around for a good while. Um, the company, I mean, is the only one that was here 
U.S. company before, during, and after prohibition. So when you think about it from a company or an industry perspective, really it was way back when, you know, 1933, coming out of prohibition, when we put advertising codes in place that talked about the placement and the content of our ads and making sure they were responsible. But I didn't arrive on the scene until about 2005. And uh, at the time, Brown Forman was really involved in efforts like the Century Council, uh, where we were working with other industry partners, and we wanted to, you know, elevate the importance of this topic, make it more strategic, look for good partnerships. And there's one that really sticks out in my mind. There was a small company here in Louisville, it was a startup company, we're headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, called City Scoot, and they had a real innovation around um, drunk driving and preventing drunk driving, and what they did was take you and your car home at the end of the night. So uh, they knew that was a barrier. People didn't want to leave their car behind and they wanted to take you know, the excuse out of drunk driving. And so for a long time, the company had said we're you know, against drunk driving. We participated in Century Council programs, but this was a chance to really get in there and support um, an on-the-ground program that had impact and touched consumers directly. And it, you know, it was small but important because it really affected... I think our com- company culture, I can still remember executives, senior executives lining up and looking at city scoot- scooters and they f- at the time folded up and went in your trunk and they drive you in the scooter in the car home and then drive the scooter back um, to the event. And so I got executives in the cars, taking them home. And we also, you know, one morning uh, people walked into work and there was a card on every single desk at Brown Foreman saying, you know, the company was going to offer this service for free. And it wasn't a license to overconsume, but it was a safety net. And so that was a very big cultural shift for the organization to go directly into partnership with this entrepreneurial organization and, um, you know, make it an employee benefit, make it a community benefit. Wow, that's that's quite in- interesting. And it it, it certainly uh, demonstrates the kind of innovative uh, activity that uh, I know all of us have been involved in. Um, Diane, why why does your company and and, and others in the supplier trade um, why do they think this is such an important area for them to be involved in? Well, it's really simple. We know it's the right thing to do. You know, millions of legal age consumers responsibly enjoy our products every day. And we know it brings them refreshment and enjoyment. It's part of their social occasions. But we know that there are those who abuse or misuse our products. And we recognize um, and know that our, you know, not only do we believe it, but our consumers know that they want us to take steps to educate them and to help prevent them these bad things, negative things from happening, whether it's drunk driving, underage drinking, or overconsumption. And we know, too, that we we really value partnerships in this process because we recognize that we're not the experts on everything. So we really engage people and organizations that have this expertise to help us. We utilize the third-party expert not only because it really is an excellent resource for us, but it also adds credibility to our programs that we're really interested in doing this from the right thing and have been doing it, as um, Rob said, his company has been doing it for a long time, and, and so has ours really from the beginning. So, Rob, you know, I think most of the public would probably uh, would have answered, would have expected Diane to answer the question with something uh as blatant as, well, you know, 
it's 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 good promotion. It's good business. Mm-hmm. It's it's much deeper than that, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It um, you know, it goes right for us to. If you came into Brown Foreman, you'd see two phrases used quite often. One is building forever, and so this is a company that wants to perpetuate and exist for a very long time. And we know uh, that responsibility is the path to do that. And you know, I talked a little bit about prohibition at the beginning. That's a long shadow that still hangs over the industry and the company of something we never want again. And then you'd see a phrase called enriching life. And we know that can only be done um, when people drink responsibly. And if it's irresponsible, it can be very harmful and, and devastating, really, to consumers and their families. So I think, you know, it, the PR in Interesting is one of the last uh, considerations on the list of things that we look at when getting into a partnership. We really do this work from the point of the company's values. And in our case, we're a family-controlled company, so we have you know Brown family members whose name is on the building and who are directly involved in the organization. So it's not just the employees' values, but the shareholder values. Um, we do it from a really strong point of relationship building, and so we've just found time and time again that this strengthens relationships uh, with customers, with distributors, with consumers, um, with those in the community. And there is an, a part of it's about rights, and just you know we ha- we have a product that is regulated and should be regulated, um, and we really earn those rights uh, to market and sell it, and and the pathway to to maintaining those rights and commercial freedoms is through responsibility. So there's a lot of motivation, um, I guess, behind the value that responsibility creates for the organization. Well, the motivation for your engagement in responsibility programming, Rob, may not be profitability, but it's good business, isn't it? It is. I mean, it... um, it's the way we want our brands presented to consumers. You know, we don't. We want them to have a beneficial and healthy relationship with our brands. Um, you know, it's when we're trying to bring employees in, it's the type of company we know people want to work for. It's, um, you know, it it is, uh, you know, in in working with part in partnerships. You know, we. We want it to be an equal partner and bring in our skills and combine it with other skills, as Diane had mentioned. And so it's really, and it, at times it can be also a very personal issue. Um, you know, I talked about the city scoot example, and you know there was, and this is an incident back in the late 1980s where a Brown Foreman executive was driving home from a party and um, was twice the legal limit and got into an accident and killed somebody. And that was really, really personal for the organization. And we don't ever want that to happen again. So some of the things that you have, you know, happening 30 years later have roots um, from earlier in the company's history. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, Diane, Rob shared with us earlier uh, an innovative uh, program that uh, he got involved in, and you shared with us one of some of the first programs that you did. But is 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 there a particular alcohol responsibility activity that either uh, you've uh, you've organized or you've uh, observed that uh, uh, strikes you as being innovative? and particularly uh, uh, useful in terms of moving this agenda? 
Well, I think there are really two programs that really stand out that Miller Coors represents and, and I'm really proud to be part of. And um, one is um, our stance on drunk driving prevention. Um, this New Year's Eve, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary of having a free rides program uh, in place where we've provided over 5 million safe rides for people on occasions like New Year's Eve. Um, but we're also, you know, not just leaving it there. We also are very heavily involved in supporting designated driver programs, uh, people taking cabs, and a relationship with Uber so that, you know, people can get home safely and, and don't have to um, uh, decide to drive um, while they're impaired or drunk. And, you know, over the last eight years, we've helped over 17 million people get connected to safe rides. So that is something that really is significant um, in, our, in our company's history. And, and the second I have to say is the work that we've been doing with the Responsible Retailing Forum. Um, Miller Coors has had a relationship um, with our program, Respect 21, with the Responsible Retailing Forum since 2005. And with that program, we've, you know, inv- we've reached over 50 different communities. We've touched over 2,000 retailer participants to really help them check IDs prior to to the sale of alcohol. Um, we, you know, using their platform, we've, you know, had mystery shopper inspections and we've researched the, the tools and the communications and we really believe that we've really enhanced and, and helped address this um, underage access issue. Um, right now, we're really focused in on college communities and, you know, have impacted almost 900 retail participants in the program. And coupling that, we've also worked with the Responsible Retailing Forum on our Great Place grant program where we provide funding directly to universities so that they can help address alcohol-related issues right on their campus using evidence-based approaches. And, you know, since it began in 2011, you know, over $1.1 million has been provided to these universities to address these important topics. Well, that was a um, very impressive list of things that that, um, you and the company have been involved in. They also shows the arc of some of the various types of responsibility programming we've been involved in over the years and how how this uh, area has evolved. Uh, One of the things that's on my mind is wondering if the nature of the products your company sells affects the types of issues you have to address um, with responsible alcohol programming or do you think uh, they're interchangeable? Rob, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I think it does affect uh, sensitivities and how we address issues and, and when and how we take them on and, 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 how, and the just big need for partnerships in tackling issues related to alcohol harm. Um, you know, here at Brown Foreman, we have been on a fairly steady path of working locally for now in the Louisville community around alcoholism and treatment and recovery. And we have three uh, major partners here in Louisville, uh, all treatment and recovery centers that do do different forms of recovery. And, you know, that topic took a while for us to get um, comfortable with and for partners to get comfortable working with us and uh, addressing some of the sensitivities around it. But it, it's such a beneficial thing for the community and also for our employees. You know, we have these elephant in the room events with employees where we bring um, these partners in to speak about difficult or challenging issues. And, you know, the ones that we do on the issue of dependency or alcoholism, if you put employees in a room and ask how many people have either been affected by this with friends or family members, almost every hand goes up. And, 
you know, when you have a product that um, can be enjoyed by the vast majority of people, but for others, you know, nothing further from the truth, um, you know, that's, that's the type of the nature of the product that just brings a different uh, sensitivity and the need for partnerships into the equation. I've I've been there. I've been there. Uh, Thanks for that, Rob. Uh, We need to take a break, uh, but when we return, we'll be joined by James Springer of the Maryland State Licensed Beverage Association and Chuck Farrar of Bay Ridge Wine and Spirits to give us a retailer's perspective on these issues. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners, or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. And welcome back to Alcohol Across America. I'm pleased to have James Springer of the Maryland State Licensed Beverage Association and Chuck Farrar of Bay Ridge Wine and Spirits join us to provide an alcohol retailer's perspective to this conversation. Jane and Chuck, welcome to Alcohol Across America. Thank you, Scott. Hi, Hi, Scott, and thank you for inviting me. I'm uh, really honored to participate and hope to contribute some meaningful input to the conversation. Well, I I, I know that uh, from my experience working with the Maryland State Licensed Beverage Association, being such a progressive leader in these areas, and both of you individually from our experience, um, I know that you're going to be uh, incredibly helpful to our understanding of alcohol responsibility from a retailer's perspective. Um, 
Let me start by asking each of you, I'll start with Jane, if I could. How did you first get introduced to this uh, area of responsibility programming? Sure. Um, you know, I was introduced to what Marilyn refers to as alcohol awareness training. Um, actually, back in 1984, I was serving on the board of directors for the Baltimore County Licensed Beverage Association, uh, which is a trade association of on- and off-premise retail alcohol beverage licensees, and they were part of the MSLBA and are part of the MSLBA. And the association had just invested in sponsorship of the Techniques of Alcohol Management Program, or um, TAM for short, and it was encouraging members to participate in the program um, to become more proactive in promoting responsible alcohol sales and service. Um, And it was, uh, at the time, very new to, to retailers, and uh, you know, some actually met with resistance, but you know, in the end, it was something that everybody got behind and, and wholeheartedly supported, including myself. I mean, I, um, as soon as I heard about the, the program, I wanted to become involved in it. Um, I had just uh, left a career in marketing and advertising to actually work in a, in a local packaged goods business um, because I really enjoyed the, the whole social interaction, but I was also very concerned about problem situations that resulted um, from people consuming too much alcohol. Um, and also with making sure underage customers weren't served. You know, back then, um, in the early 80s, drinking age had just changed to 21. Um, previously, the law allowed for beer for 18 to 20-year-olds, and 21 was the age for liquor. But if a person was already 18, there was a grandfather clause uh, to confuse the calculation. Um, so a lot of teens were attempting to buy alcohol in those days, needless to say. Not to say that that stopped, but I think it was very prevalent at that point. Um, and the particular business I was managing at the time, um, it was located about a quarter mile from the county line, and closing time for the neighboring county businesses was 1 a.m. So... Um, at 1 a.m., basically, we had a large influx of people who had already been drinking coming um, into our establishment for last call. And then we also had a large factory that was uh, only about a mile from the business. And they had a 12 o'clock shift that clocked out. And they were coming into the establishment uh, after work trying to catch up before closing time. Uh, so needless to say, all those things considered, uh, we encountered major problems um, at the particular business I was working at um, and, and really had to work hard at, at changing the atmosphere to show people you know, a good time to keep them coming back, but also promoting responsible alcohol consumption. You know, I uh, really liked being part of that change. Um, I wanted to continue in helping promote uh, the industry in a good way. Um, so you know, I started teaching the TAM program for the county association, and uh, a few years later, I think Maryland was was probably one of the first states, um, an alcohol awareness training law was passed. Um, And at that point, the uh, state association hired me to take the program statewide. Um, I've been here ever since, and I've really felt proud and and very privileged to represent retailers in, in promoting a good industry. I actually think, Jane, you and I met about the time that I, uh, first took that position as I was uh, beginning my tenure as a TAM instructor up I, here in, in New York State. I believe um, so. I think we, we both were pretty much on the ground level there. And uh, as I'm sure you encountered as well, not everybody was open-armed. <laughs> but that, well, that that's actually a great, a great segue to Chuck. So, Chuck, you, uh, you, you're, you're in the in the package store business in Maryland. How did you get introduced uh, to alcohol responsibility activities? And were you receptive or were you one of those folks Jane had to win over? No, actually, uh, when I got into business in 1991, the law was already in effect. 
and it was required of me to take a training class. And this, in taking this class, I learned a lot of things because I was completely outside of the business. But you got to remember, I'm a father and I'm a grandfather, and it's the right thing for us to do. So it was easy for me to get involved and get into enforcing this and just getting involved in different associations because of this. It, because this is the thing, I'm selling a product, a controlled product, it needs to be controlled, and we need rules, and we need to know how to do it, and this is where we got trained in the right way to handle this product. Because actually, actually, the retailer is the last man on the line. We are the front. We're the ones that make the difference between an underage person getting served, somebody intoxicated, or somebody that's on our do-not-call list, deliver list. So we're the last person. You know, that's interesting, Chuck, um, your perspective, because uh, while we don't have mandatory training here in New York, and one of the arguments we've always had is would people taking mandatory training be less receptive to it because it was required rather than if, if, uh, if they do it on a volunteer basis. And certainly from uh, your example, it sounds like that didn't have that effect at all. I'm assuming, and obviously uh, your, your, your position as a responsible member of your community, uh, a member of a family, parent, father, all of that, it, it clearly went along with your values. But you must have received some benefits out of, out of this activity um, that, uh, that made you feel like it was worthwhile rather than just uh, something you had to go through. What kinds of benefits do you and other retailers get out of participating in this training other than the good public relations by, you know, by, by saying you went to the class? Well, I've never told anybody that I've, and I've never promoted that I've gone to classes. Uh, but I promote this as being a responsible member of the community. And the, the community and the people react to that. They react to the, a good neighbor and a responsible person. And we promote it. Uh, in our particular store, we're required to have one person on that's trained during all shifts. We require all of our employees to be trained. I mean, we take those extra steps to make sure that everyone is trained and knows what they're doing. Every single cashier, even our office manager, has to go through the classes. And uh, we're known for that. We're known that this is a hard place to get served, and the community appreciates that. But it's beneficial to me as a person and as to a, as a businessman. I... Um I, I, I certainly take your point. Jane, um, uh, training is something that you've been doing in Maryland for uh, a number of years now, uh, since the, uh, you really, as you said, you were on the front lines and were trailblazers here. Uh, are there other res alcohol responsibility activities that the association is engaged with its members on or the association members are engaged on? Uh, yeah, there are. And, um, you know, one of the things, that the benefits of, of being involved in the, the TAM program to start with is I really think it helped um, to foster some relationships with the enforcement and substance abuse agencies. You know, we always invited them to the seminars, and uh, we got got to meet them firsthand and on, on a good basis and not in a problem situation. And from there, um, many other things developed. We had a program 
um, that the association sponsored. Uh, we called it Mystery Shopper. And uh, the, basically what happened was retailers... Um, it was really to help retailers to find out whether or not employees were checking ID because, of course, we know if we ask, are you checking ID, you know, the obvious answer is, is yes, of course we're checking ID because that's what they're told to do. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times I find employees are really intimidated about the whole process. So this was a way for retailers to find out and then to act from there. But what they would do is a, a, if businesses usually had a policy to card anyone who appeared to be 30 or under or 40 or under, or some even said everyone. So we partnered with a private investigating firm, and they sent people into um, the business, and we, we established an age between 21 and 25 to attempt to purchase alcohol without showing an ID. So they were of legal age. This wasn't an underage sale, um, but they were questionable that their ID should have been requested. So the retailers actually had to pay a fee um, to be involved in this program, but they paid a fee, and there was a monthly visit to see if, the, if their employee would ask for ID. Following the visit, the retailer received a report showing information about whether or not the ID was requested, and it would have the date and the time and the identity identifying features of, of whoever the employee was at the time. Uh, then the, the um, retailer was assigned a number and so that their business name was anonymous, and we would send everyone who participated in the program a report monthly to show how they compared um, with the total number of visits. And uh, that was really well received. Uh, retailers liked knowing uh, without the threat of liability whether or not that was going on, and then they could proceed from there. Um, we also were involved in a program, um, it, was, it was called RAM, um, some, similar to what many areas have that's uh, called Cops and Shops, but one of our local police agencies, Ocean City Police, had developed this program, and RAM stood for Reducing Alcohol Availability to Minors. And the police would partner with local retailers. They would place an undercover officer in the establishment, and the officer would actually be the one to check ID behind the counter. But again, they were undercover, so they were in plain clothes. If the ID was valid, the customer was handed a business card from the police officer that said, your ID was just checked by a police officer. It's against the law to provide alcohol to persons under 21, and uh, please drink responsibly. Now, if the ID was counterfeit, a uniformed police officer would uh, be outside and would greet the person um, and issue whatever the appropriate citation would be. Um, you know, back in, in the early days when we first did this program, I think the citation uh, was like a $25 ticket. And those fines and, and penalties have increased a great deal since then. But the bottom line is that program was such a great deterrent in preventing underage people from even attempting to purchase. As you can imagine, the, the word spread pretty quickly. Um, but it also provided employees with you know, firsthand, they had the police officer there with them helping, and, and you know, they're experts in checking the ID, so they got to be experts as well. And an unexpected uh, benefit out of that was that the police officer that was outside uh, was often and many times had situations where they observed an underage person approaching an adult and trying to get them to purchase alcohol for them. Um, and if that actually went through and the adult did purchase alcohol for them, then the officer could intervene at that point and, again, issue the appropriate citations. So that was something that we weren't really expecting or looking at when, when involved in the program, but uh, an interesting thing that came about. Um, and, I, you know, I think, Chuck, if I'm not mistaken, um, weren't you involved in a program in Anne Arundel County where you were doing something similar with one of the wholesalers? Yes, that's what I was going to just break in on and say that. 
we had a partnership with Brown Foreman, and at the time it was Charmer Sunbelt Breakthrough now, and they did a program where they went around to our membership, our Anne Arundel County membership, and they did undercover sting-type operations. But it was kept private. If they failed, they were notified. If they passed, the people, the clerks that did the proper things and ID'd everybody and did everything the way, right way, where names were put in a pot, and then they got uh, prizes and rewards. And it was amazing how the clerks reacted to it and how the owners reacted to it. It was a very positive thing, and it improved our car to bill. And then they came back and followed up again, and the compliance rate was sky high compared to what it had been. It was really effective, but Brown Foreman's the one that initiated that through our, their distributor and our association. It was a great program. As we wrap up this segment on retailer uh, perspective on alcohol programming, are there issues that are different between off-premise retailers like Chuck and on-premise retailers like some of the other members of your association? Oh, well, there's always different issues. Um, you know, in regard to responsibility program or, or the alcohol awareness training, you know, obviously the, the off-premise sales, it's a quicker transaction, um, where as on-premise, it's instead of a transaction, you know, customers are visiting for a longer period of time and they're consuming on-premise, so their level of intoxication can change. Um, it has to be monitored frequently. Um, and the retailers can also be held accountable if customers, you know, say, of age, um, and it might even be a parent, provide alcohol to underage persons on their establishment. Um, not to mention they have just a uh, on-premise have a general overall responsibility for the welfare of the customers, um, for the general welfare while they're on their premises. Um, as far as off-sale go, you know, they face many of the same problems, and I think it's more difficult in oftentimes in that they have a quicker transaction, so they have, uh, they have to make a decision in a much more timely manner than what may be an on-premise would be involved. That makes a lot of sense. Chuck, do you see it the same way do you, uh, as Jane does? Oh, yes. Um, somebody can bring a six-pack of beer up to the counter without just saying a word, just set it on the counter. And you don't, and you take their money. You have to look at them and figure if they're sober or not. I mean, without them, without any conversation. So you have to engage them. But it's much quicker. With on-premise, they're spending some time with the with the customer and they get a feel of what's going on. Hmm. That's interesting. If they're monitoring a situation, which right. obviously is a point that needs to be stressed. Yeah, you know, um, I um, I certainly understand that at the end of the day. Each situation is is challenging, and for that particular server or clerk, whatever their perspective is, um, they're under a great deal of stress, uh, which is why the work that we're doing here is so important to help them help them get through it. Uh, well, we've had a good opportunity in our first two segments to talk about some of the work that uh, our colleagues have done here. We're going to take another break. And then when we come back, we'll continue our discussion and look to the future of alcohol responsibility programming. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners, or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. And we're back on Alcohol Across America. And now we're joined by all of our guests this afternoon, Jane Springer, Diane Wagner, Chuck Farrar, and Rob Frederick. So let's look ahead to the future and what all of us in the alcohol beverage industry can look forward to and the challenges we have to face uh, in the area of alcohol responsibility programming. Um, Let me ask you, Diane, as you and your colleagues at Miller Coors are looking forward to the future, are there any changes forecast for the industry that you're looking at will require you to reshape uh, your responsibility programming activities? Well, Scott, we recently released our 2025 targets and goals for the future. So we, um, you know, based on our materiality study and taking into account the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we really have, uh, you know, looked at our, our ambitions and aligned our priorities to uh, to meet them. Um, we like to say we're raising the bar on beer because we really are focused for the future. We really are putting more emphasis into responsible drinking and making sure that our marketing and consumer information is up to date and that we're driving innovation um, and making you know more and more consumer choices available. And Rob, are, are, are the folks at Brown Foreman and the various uh, brands that uh, uh, that you sell are 
Are you seeing changes in the, in the industry down the road that you have to adjust your programming? I think, um, uh, thanks, Scott. I'll pick up on something Chuck had mentioned earlier about the program in Anne Arundel County. And, you know, he talked about some of the benefits of that, and that was a really good program. The, the real win for me um, was the response of our local sales team. And so, you know, they are out selling Jack Daniels, Whitford Reserve, and other brands of ours every day and focused typically on price and volumes and promotions. But um, with a program like he talked about, this was a chance for a different kind of conversation and relationship and uh, community involvement that they responded. I mean, that was sort of initiated by corporate, but very quickly picked up by the sales team and it has happened in other locations. And so, you know, the trend I would point to in responsibility program is just the need for uh, retailer involvement. We've got um, retailers here that are very involved, but more retailer involvement, more distributor involvement, and thinking about how all of our sales teams who are everywhere, everywhere really, um, can be the ones bringing responsibility to the market and to consumers and to communities rather than folks like me who are in a corporate role. I can help enable all that to happen, but they're really the ones on the front lines um, and where the difference is going to be made. And so, uh, yeah. So speaking of the front lines, Chuck, as you said, you're the you're you're the one of the six of us on uh, in the discussion this afternoon that is literally standing in the front lines. Um, what changes are you seeing in the uh, in the package store industry or in your consumer base that uh, you think we all have to adjust our our planning, or or do you think there's any changes that requires us to change what we're doing? Oh, actually, I think there's a lot of changes coming. And when it comes to uh, responsible responsibility programs, I mean, let's face it, look what Internet sales are doing. How do we reach that person that's doing Internet sale purchases? We're going to have driverless cars in another five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Pretty common. How is that going to change everything? There's a lot of changes coming, and we've got to get not only up with it, we got to get ahead of it, know what we're going to do. And I, at this point, I don't know how we're going to reach some of these people because it's, you're not going to have person-to-person sales. It's going to be on a lot of sales are going to be on the Internet. That is, um, uh, there's a, 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 certainly a greater, a greater degree of that happening. Does the, does the workforce in the retail sector and its, and its uh, evolving nature um, uh, have an effect on on what we're doing here, uh, Jane. Are are your members either on or off premise uh, experiencing uh, the same uh, uh, changes in their workforce that uh, we're seeing here in New York with uh, uh, what I would say younger younger employees, perhaps less career oriented? Um, what 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 trends are you seeing? Uh, in that space that uh, that you and the association have to help your members deal with? Now, I don't know if we're really seeing much of a trend in the workforce. Um, you know, quite frankly, there are a lot of businesses that um, you know, I'm seeing much older employee base involved in, and, and maybe that's because they're more sophisticated in their operations, so, you know, they require that, that person with more experience. Um, but, you know, I, I do see 
quite a change in just, um, you know, alcohol venues uh, or where alcohol is available. Um, there's been a great change in that, and I, I think that's probably going to continue on. But alcohol is available at many more venues, and um, it's incidental to many of the businesses rather than a major consideration. You know, for example, you've got barber shops and beauty salons and art galleries now that are licensed to sell alcohol in Maryland. And then we also have alcohol available at zoos and, and festivals and farmers markets. Um, and many places promote uh, family-friendly alcohol events. Um, you know, we just had an event here in, in my local neighborhood. It was an Oktoberfest last weekend. And, um, you know, obviously they're, they're promoting some of the Oktoberfest beers, but they're also, you know, promoting a family-friendly activity and face painting for the kids in games and contests. So I think those are all considerations um, because alcohol is so much more available that we, we probably need to um, make sure to address all those audiences and also to get a public acceptance um, of the need for responsible alcohol consumption at all these different venues. You know, that's a really interesting point you make, Jane. In the, um, in the most recent server training class that I conducted, I mentioned it earlier in the discussion, um, this topic of uh, non-traditional alcohol venues, specifically um, um, hair salons uh, and spas came up. And uh, I, I'm wondering uh, if, uh, if, uh, if you have an opinion uh, or if you have experiences in terms of approaching those kinds of non-traditional establishments um, or their uh, employees, and if you, can sh- if, if you have any experiences with the reactions they have to being approached to being involved in alcohol programming. Well, you know, when it comes to the facilities that are licensed, um, they typically uh, have the same requirements as the other retailers in that that they have to get people trained. Um, What I do find is because it is more of an incidental part of the business than, you know, the the regular businesses, a lot of the information is so much more new, and and they generally are receptive to, to finding out the information. Um, but again, it's, it's not the major part of the business, so they they come in a lot more um, unknowing about all the potential problems that they could encounter, and, and you know we try to come up with ways to make sure that alcohol is consumed responsibly at the, the different venues where they're involved. And some of these venues are some really large events, um, you know, so you, you kind of look at the the same kind of concept as you would when you're talking about like a stadium where you know you've got a large number of people. So in, in the most part, I've found them receptive, quite frankly, as far as the, the barber shops and the beauty salons and the, the galleries being licensed, that's all pretty new. Um, and, you know, we haven't had a major influx of that yet, but it's definitely starting to happen as far as the alcohol availability at, at many events. Um, you know, that's, that's probably the, the more significant part of it. And how do you get to all those people? Because, again, generally it's, it's a lot of the public at large. Sometimes it's temporary licenses, charitable groups. And, you know, I think we've got to do some more work there, quite frankly. You know, Scott, I'd like to chime in on this. People are thinking of alcohol like it's Coca-Cola or it's like a soda. They're not thinking of it as alcohol. And I think that's a danger to us in our industry and the public in general because there's, it's being saturated all over. I was at the liquor board hearing last night, and they issued a license to an art um, class where two women have an art class 5 to 10 o'clock at night. And in the daytime, they have birthday parties for small children. But they got a beer and wine license. I mean, it's, alcohol is being 
put out everywhere now, and it's losing some of its uh, edge. It's, it's just considered a commodity now. It's not considered as a special product that has to be have with special controls and regulations, proper regulations, and that's a danger to all of us. It's also something that we're really happy that um, people, when they have these choices, also have options and awareness bigger than they've ever had before. So with the, with the decline in drunk driving and underage drinking, we know that the work that's been done by everyone for years is really getting through to people. And while um, they're making it, in some cases, more accessible or in different venues, there's still also this awareness that is driving some of the government statistics that are really positive. I think this is, this this is, is Rob. I'll just build on that. I mean, one of the we just had a group in here last week, and kind of like the City Scoot example I shared, it's just an early signal of change. So City Scoot came to us way before Uber and Lyft and other things were all in place, and uh, we grabbed onto it. But we had some folks in here from Michigan who are from an organization called Better Drinking Culture, and uh, they're young, they're entrepreneurial, and really what they're trying to do is put. Um, uh, into millennial, younger language, what um, very positive relationship and healthy relationship with alcohol and getting accounts, bars, restaurants, and others um, engaged in Michigan around how do you create an environment that is promoting better drinking. And so, you know, literally, I have a sticker on my in my office that says "Because hangovers suck," and that's one of their one of their taglines. And it's really, it's kind of. Refreshing. I mean, they're doing this in the right language and to the right target and for the right reasons and trying to create this movement. Um, and I think it has a lot of potential, um, you know, that the younger generation wants to have a, 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 are healthier and they want to avoid social shaming. They, uh, we've seen some of our competitors and Diane's competitors, Heineken, pick up on that trend and really start to run with it through their advertising. So I think that's probably the next it's beyond regulation. It's into, you know, what's the right social movement around alcohol that um, creates better better consumption. A few minutes ago, Chuck reminded us that alcohol is not like soda. But I was in a store the other day and I saw alcoholic soda. So not only are there many more venues which want to sell alcohol, but there are many more ways of providing alcohol, different types of beverages, and even non-beverage delivery. Uh, so, uh, Diane, I know that your company and other brewers were challenged with the whole idea of combining alcohol with energy drinks. Could you talk about that a moment? Well, that's certainly something that um, when we acquired the brand Sparks, that was one of the issues that we had to deal with, but um, we quickly realized that that was not an area with energy drinks or caffeine that we wanted to have involved in our products at all. And so um, as a stance that we've taken is we will not combine um, caffeine with alcohol. Um, we don't feel it's a responsible approach. So as we start looking at these new opportunities, we're constantly weighing them and seeing if they're where our company values and, and commitment to responsibility um, plays as well. And, um, you know, as part of a, a marketing compliance committee member, uh, you know, of over 10 people that meet twice a week and look at all the above line advertisement for our entire company, I can tell you that we take this really seriously when we have new products in, uh, introduced or when we make decisions like this. It's, um, it's something that we really are concerned about, that we are polling our own values, but also that we are being responsible in the process products that we're making available and the marketing campaigns that um, support it. Mm -hmm. 
And Rob, we also heard a lot about powdered alcohol. Yeah, we're we're not in the powdered alcohol business and have no plans to be in it. I mean, the area that we and this is what could be a whole other show, and I think it was. But you know, this area of marijuana and alcohol is a great unknown to us, and uh, we have concerns about it. And you know, we know that there's mixing going on, either in the same occasion or in the same consumption um, informally. And you know, I think that's where there's going to have to be some some research and rules of the road. Um, not too dissimilar to the energy drink topic uh, as that industry evolves. And, and if I would just add, too, that, you know, millennial preferences are also something that we have to continually address and look at um, as something, as they're wanting different products, how that plays into each of our companies and how they fit into the products and, and, and um, opportunities that we involve, whether we're engaging people on social media and making sure that we're responsible in the approach that we're using all these different avenues that are coming out, um, as well as the product choices. Um, I know as Miller Coors, you know, making a commitment that we're going to increase the number of low and no alcohol products that are available and take advantage of our parent company, Molson Coors, um, different product portfolio and, and, and start driving some of that activity as well. Even though we've had two products in, in the market with the Sharps and Coors NA for years. So we definitely recognize that um, we have an opportunity to engage millennials and um, help them uh, make those responsible choices. We're having the same thing, Diane, with, you know, mocktails and you know, all of our brand ambassadors have drinks with alcohol and drinks without alcohol that they're constantly putting forward um, for the same reasons so that people want choice and they want, and we want to provide choice. Um, I think it's a, a very significant trend. Well, the problem with having a great guest like we have this afternoon is that there's never enough time to get everything in. Uh, so I, I want to thank all. Uh, all of you for your insight and your valuable conversation to today's conversation. Uh, Brad, do you have any closing thoughts this afternoon? No, just to to thank everyone for their participation. It's a really interesting field um, and it's been a pleasure for me to be working with with people like Diane and Rob uh, over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, In our next podcast, I'll be joined by Dr. William DeYoung of the Boston University School of Public Health to discuss effective strategies for reducing the problems that result from college students' misuse of alcohol. There are several evidence-based strategies that can be employed, and the challenge now is to motivate college administrators to use them. So we'll look forward to sharing this with you in another week. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.